Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be continuing my journey through the decades. This week, it's the 1940s. Now, for any of you who have just tuned into this episode randomly and have no idea what I'm on about, I am doing a series of episodes spanning from the 1920s all the way up to the 2010s. So that's 10 decades worth of film content, and I'll be picking my top five films from each decade and ultimately coming up with a top 10 list of films from across the 10 decades that I've just that I've looked at throughout this series of episodes. Whatever reaches my number one pick in each episode will go into that final top 10 of the decades of all time. So sit back, relax, and have a little listen. So let's just get started, really. So 1940s. It's a decade now. We're getting through the decades. I'm starting to really find more and more films that I know and I love and it's starting to become as we get later on in this series it will become a lot harder for me to pick the films that I want to put into a top five I could easily do a top 10 I could easily do a top 20 but we'd be here all day so I've narrowed it down to a top five we're gonna kick off with number five so this film was released in 1947 directed by the legendary duo that are Powell and Pressburger or if I use their full names, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. For any of you film buffs out there, you'll know them for some of their work, being great pioneers as a directing duo. Before we had the Russo brothers, we had Powell and Pressburger. And this film is a British film, which has done very well, actually, at the time of its release. I'll get onto its sort of notoriety and the bits and pieces about its award-winning in a moment. But this film is Black Narcissus, so 1947 film, Powell and Pressburger, starring Deborah Kerr, David Farah, and Kathleen Byron. I would say Kathleen Byron and Deborah Kerr are the main stars of this film. Uh, and just to give you a quick brief overview of what this film is about, so Black Narcissus is follows a group of Anglican nuns uh, led by the lead character in this, Sister Cloda, who is played by Deborah Kerr. They are all sent, this group of nuns are sent to a mountain in the Himalayas, and the climate in the region is hostile, and the nuns are housed in a, in a very odd old palace, which they are basically there to convert, do the Lord's work, and make into a hospital and you know place of worship to spread their religion essentially and spread the lord's word doing the usual nun things and obviously slowly throughout this film you think it'd be quite a boring film oh they're just going to spread god's word it could be quite boring it's going to be a religious picture but this film does have its little sort of ups and downs really with it with the lead character obviously sister Cloda, played by deborah kerr being the sort of main our main character that we follow but we slowly start to see the focus shift from religious aims and ideals and wants from the group of nuns to distractions. Specifically with the character of Sister Ruth, played by Kathleen Byron, uh, who falls for a government worker, Mr. Dean, who's, like I mentioned his name earlier, uh, David Farah, and she begins to question her vow. So obviously with nuns, you take a vow of cel uh, celibacy, and she begins to question her vows and whether the nun's life is for her and whether she wants to continue doing it or if she wants to run away with a man essentially uh, this is kind of the similar things sort of explored similar themes explored in a 1950s film starring audrey hepburn which is literally called the nun's story and that i might mention that a little bit later in the, another episode but 
similar themes are sort of really drawn out with this but the thing that sort of makes this film stand out is it is entirely isolated the film isolates this group of nuns who are very strict and you know they have their faith and that's what they're following but their faith is tested in this isolated place obviously for one of them it's the temptation of a man and romance and love and such others it's more just that distraction from one of their sisters makes them sort of question their own their own sort of vows and what they want to do whether they want to continue but there's essentially the main point of this story is you get a big clash between deborah kerr's character and kathleen byron so much so that it ends in quite a climatic way considering it's a small british picture but it's a very interesting film to watch and you know it's very well acted it's obviously acted to the standard of the time of the 1940s uh, very rp very posh and very everything's over pronounced and very polite but you know it's not the same sort of style of acting that we're used to today it's very it is very much of its time you know it's quite easy to follow the story it's not too bad it's not a very long film either as far as i'm concerned really it's standard film length an hour and 42 minutes just over an hour and a half or something like that it's a very watchable film it's based on a novel by rumor godden the other thing about this i mentioned the technical specifications for this it's actually i mean it's not i wouldn't say it was the first but it's one of the earlier works of british cinema to use a technicolor based look and I mentioned Technicolor from the likes of The Wizard of Oz and other such productions from like Hollywood. But in terms of British cinema, we get this lovely sense of grandness about it. So the colour is dazzling. And, and actually, this film was shot so well, it won several awards, including Oscars for its cinematography and art direction. It genuinely is such like, I only watch this on BBC Two, on the broadcasting channel in the UK. I didn't actually expect to see such good quality of transfer on a broadcast TV copy. I don't own this on Blu-ray. I might, I'm tempted to buy it. So after this, I'll probably buy it and then watch it again and sort of have a little look at the ins and outs of the film. But I really think it's a beautifully shot film. And from a technical specification, you can see why it won the Oscars and the several other accolades it got for its art direction and cinematography because of the fact that you get this lovely, luscious experience of colour. The colour in the film really stands out, and even the skin tones on the faces of the actors, like, I know they would have had to make them up with specific makeup to make them pop off the screen, as it were, but the colours of the exterior footage, so the footage that's not on a soundstage, I'm guessing, because a lot of, obviously, this, I think some of this was shot at Pinewood or Shepperton Studios, I think, if I remember rightly, but this is really the location footage that they use. So in what looks like the mountains, the Himalayas, some of that stuff, like the bright blue skies, everything like that, it's completely and utterly gorgeous to watch. Like, it's like looking at a series of paintings. And the story is like the extra bit, which I suppose in some respects is good, other respects is all, but you want to watch the story. Little spoiler ahead for you guys. Um, if you haven't watched it, just pause it now and then come back to it in a second. But in the end, the climactic ending of the film between Kathleen Byron's sister Ruth and sister Clodagh where they finally clash and we end up seeing the demise of sister Ruth with a certain bit of flair then a bit of Hollywood flair and it's like very strange actually considering it's a very talky picture talks about doubt of faith very much a film about how you can question your own faith and your own beliefs and what you've sort of got used to 
And then there's, it's not an action sequence, but the end of the film is very action-based. It's very good in a way that, you know, someone falls off a cliff. I'm not going to say who exactly. There's a bit of a tussle on said cliff that I mentioned, but ultimately that is, you know, something for you to look forward to in the film. And ultimately the emotional range of these two actresses, so Deborah Kerr and Kathleen Byron, is amazing. They do a great job bouncing off each other, one being very resentful of the other and the other one just sort of being like, oh, just get on with it, with your job. Do it for the Lord, as it were. That's what they're sort of trying to say. And this film actually has sparked, I think it was in 2020, they've done a BBC televised, so a serialised adaptation of Black Narcissus with uh, Gemma Artisan, I believe, starred in it. I didn't watch it, but it got sort of the shiny treatment. When I saw the trailer for that originally, I was like, oh, that looks really like it could be a horror film, but it's not. I think the original is best. You watch the original before you watch any other adaptation of it, the original film anyway, because I think it's well paced, it's great acting, and overall, and it's in colour. Beautiful, glorious Technicolor. What more could you ask for? So, moving on to my fourth pick, uh, well, number four then, number four in my list of films that I have picked from the 1940s is the Michael Curtis 1942 film, Back to Black and White, 1942, so around, you know, mid-World War II, and that is the film that is Casablanca, uh, and obviously lots of people will probably expect me to pick this because it is a classic of the era. It's a classic of golden age Hollywood. Everybody loves a bit of Casablanca, you know, for its old classic nicheness, as it were. Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman play former lovers in this story. So prior to the events of the film, they were lovers uh, and they met in Rick's. So Humphrey Bogart plays a character called Rick and Ingrid Bergman plays Ilsa Lund. And in Rick's cafe in Paris, they both meet and they form a blossoming romance, but eventually, obviously, the occupation of France it draws them apart. Rick moves away, loses Ilsa in the process. He There's a bit of a miscommunication, really, on both of their parts, because the way it looks is that they didn't tell each other what they were doing, and they lose touch, but Casablanca is the story of how they rekindle that love during the height of this tense period in time. It's actually quite rare actually because I know there's one of two ways that the 1940s could go for films that are made during wartime. You can either look at the war itself and actually look at the war which didn't really happen properly until like the retrospective like films in the future would do that look at World War One as a historical subject but you maybe have a couple of those that are sort of looking at it as it happens. You get ones that use the films like the idea of war and Nazi Germany and you know, those general sentiments of hatred towards the enemy, as they would refer to them in a lot of these films, and they would say how they basically sort of use it as like a side, not a side plot, but like a background, something going on in the background, and that's what sort of kicks off the events of the film. I know there's a film noir, Escape into the Fog, that does that, but it uses that period to sort of anchor it. Then you get the other ones that are sort of acknowledge it but don't acknowledge it and I think Casablanca really fits into that style of yeah this is what it is but essentially Casablanca is like I said it's a love story but mixed with border struggles throughout the entire thing so it's set in the area of Casablanca which I think is just off of the African French coastline but Casablanca it's kind of neutral territory it's almost like Switzerland in a way because you get the because Rick is the character of Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, is a neutral man. He doesn't really like to get involved, although he used to be a little bit involved in the ways of siding with a specific side. But he 
sort of gave that up and he runs his own cafe so rick's cafe american or american cafe in the middle of casablanca it's like the place to be for anyone who's anyone and rick is like this he's kind of like the godfather of casablanca as it were like if you have problems you go to rick like if you're the everyday man you go to rick but rick doesn't like to sort of make it known that he actively helps these people like he doesn't do that as a rule he looks after himself and out for himself and no one else after his bad experience with ilsa and losing her back a couple of years back prior to the events of the film but then as things pass through this film he reconnects with ilsa because she's in town she arrives and it then prompts one of the most famous lines of all the out of all the gin joints in all the world, she had to come walking into mine. That one, that's one of the many iconic lines that you can quote in classic Hollywood, but one of two particular good ones from this film. It's a lovely way. I'd say the highlight for me, really, of this film is there's a song called As Time Goes By, uh, which is sung by, I believe, the piano man man's name, Sam, who works in Rick's cafe. As Time Goes By is a song that used to be played for Rick and Ilsa and it reminds Rick of Ilsa throughout you know anytime it's played he thinks about her and he doesn't like the sound of it because he doesn't want to dwell on the past so he never lets it be played and then Ilsa comes along and Piano Man re recognizes her and remembers her and it's a joyous re reunion and next thing you know she goes play as time goes by Sam and the, the Piano Man he goes Rick doesn't let me play that. He says it's not allowed, and so just do it for me. And he plays the song, and then Rick hears it. He can just hear it. He's in the other room, but he can hear it. And he walks in, and he goes, he's like, I told you never to play that song. And then he looks up, and their eyes meet. Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart do the proper classic Hollywood thing to a T. I think I've mentioned before, if you take the colour out, you can get right down to the really basic raw emotions of the film. And with this one, when you get the simple... The close-ups, the medium close-ups of their faces, and they just look at each other, you cut between the two shots. It really does feel like there's a bit of fire, there's a bit of romance there, something's going on. And obviously at this point we don't know the backstory. We do get it explained to us about why Rick is so resentful of Ilsa to start with and is a little bit like... Mm, bit uneasy about her so we get that we get a nice like heavenly flashback in classic hollywood style it's all uh, soft focus around the edges it's really ideal and humphrey bogart gets to smile <laughs> like usually he's just like the really serious guy like maltese falcon type of thing which is another highlight from the 1940s again with humphrey bogart in it again i think it was a year prior to this one but yeah he doesn't get to be moody all the time he gets to express his happy side and yeah, like I said, so the story essentially is a love story between them two. They're rekindling their love. It's a classic romance film, really, from the golden age of Hollywood. And as I said, there's a bit of socio-political struggle at the time as well. We have the brilliant Claude Rains as Captain Louis Renault, who is probably to date one of my favourite cinema supporting characters then. And he's just a, he's a police chief with the local authorities and him and Rick kind of and Claude Rains is a brilliant actor so Claude Rains he was in The Invisible Man uh, he was also in a version of Phantom of the Opera as well he's a brilliant actor and I think in this although he's got a mustache on so he doesn't look exactly like how you'd remember him but he looks so prestigious in his little uniform and like I think him and Humphrey Bogart work so well together as a pairing and they're just a brilliant character relationship because Claude Rains is the law and then Humphrey Bogart is like this rebel but at the same time he's He's not really, but they get on. It's that little sort of, I know you're not doing what I, what the authorities want you to be doing, Rick, but they kind of have a 
like a shared truce in a way, even though it's not really a truce. And I think it's just a brilliant on-screen relationship, more more so than um, Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. I think Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart are a great pairing in terms of a supporting character and a leading character getting on because, you know, it's natural to have these leading relationships with the two main love interests but i think that one is just a genuinely good performance and this kind of leads me to the second quote that i mentioned and it's the ending quote so we uh rick has helped these individuals as a bit of a spoiler alert kind of for you he's helped some people get away out of casablanca and evade detection by the local authorities because they're not meant to be they were detained and they weren't meant to be leaving the country if you watch the film that's there's a better explanation of why it's all going on but i think you get this lovely scene where you're in like a like an airport hangar and it's really smoky because of the black and white cinematography of the shots it looks really they've got smoke bit of smoky fog like mist going on in there and it's a beautifully shot piece they crane up they must have had to have it on this this camera on a crane to just crane back up to reveal this shot because you ultimately see so there's the love is lost love is not lost between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman but the ending shot is beautiful you see Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains's character they walk together they walk off with their backs to the camera so we start off in like a, a two shot a medium two shot of them two talking and then the camera slowly pans back out and it's a beautiful shot it's all smoky and foggy and he says the lines Humphrey Bogart the immortal words Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And the music just swells, and then we go, just fade to black, and then go to the credits. And it's just an amazing moment. And I know people will think, why isn't that your number one pick? Well, because there are quite a few others that I do like, but that one is purely... I put that as my number one moment in a film. So, yeah, that's my personal opinion on that one. But moving on now to number three on my list is... I've loved I studied the book when I was in sixth form I enjoyed it so much doing it for a piece of coursework I had to do my love for the book has never ceased and the film really capitalizes on that love nothing will beat the book in this case so the book is by Graham Greene it was published originally in 1938 so this film actually comes out 10 years after the book did so 1938 novel by Graham Greene and it is called Brighton Rock now, Brighton Rock, for anyone who knows their classic British cinema, is another black and white gem. It's really, really good. It's got noir vibes to it, but I never see it as a film noir. I, it's a crime thriller, even though that's genuinely what a film noir is. I see that Brighton Rock is just as a different film that's set from aside from all the American film noirs then, or even like British ones like so things like The Third Man, which again is another highlight from the end of the 1940s, so 1949. That one is, you know, is a great film. It's brilliantly shot, amazing film, but for me, the simplicity of Brighton Rock really hits home. And just to give you sort of a brief thing about what Brighton Rock is all about, based on the Graham Greene novel, the film didn't come out until 1948, and it was directed by John Bolting and produced by the Bolting brothers. It's a very interesting film, because I just, it's got such a good cast. Like, I love this one. I don't know why I didn't put this as my number one pick, but I think I do know. But this one, it's set in Britain. Like it says, it's Brighton Rock. So it's set in Brighton in England. Uh, it's very British. <laughs> it's very British. It's got such British sensibilities about it of the time again. But you do get some slightly different dialects. They're not all RP people, although a lot of them are, even for some of the gangsters. <laughs> so essentially, the story follows a group of local Brighton-based gangsters 
who were just, you know, at the time it was more extortion and racketeering, that kind of thing. The sort of thing that you'd see in like 1920s uh, spoofs and comedies and also serious dramas as well, where you get racketeering and stuff like that in the Prohibition era. It's a similar kind of concept, classic old school gangsterism that was always portrayed back in these kinds of films. Uh, so a group of gangsters led by Pinky Brown, who is played by the amazing, the brilliant Richard Attenborough brother to obviously everyone's favorite naturist david attenborough who everybody still loves to this day but obviously other people will know richard attenborough for his work as john hammond in jurassic park in the original 1993 film richard attenborough this is a young richard attenborough and he's so still and poised and he's very like unnerving in his performance i think it's a genuinely edgy and very chilling performance i think from attenborough on this one it's a brilliant performance so he plays pinky brown it's a bit of a contrast he's got a funny very childish sounding name yet he's the leader essentially of a gang <laughs> and but you wouldn't want to cross him if you see the poster for brighton rock it's all in the eyes i think and the way he stalks you with his eyes it's just oh chilling but brilliant performance also other supporting that he's got a little gang of minions with him but particularly one highlight from the gang is one character called Dallow and he's played by the the brilliant god rest him bless him William Hartnell who for anyone who loves just as much as I do anyone who loves Doctor Who who loves the classic era of Doctor Who as much as I do then you will know William Hartnell probably most best for his performance and portrayal as the first ever incarnation of the Doctor and he's the one who kicked it all off back in 1963 but of course this is before he even got near Doctor Who so anyone who actually watched An Adventure in Space and Time the biopic film thing with David Bradley playing William Hartnell there is actually a mention of Brighton Rock in there which I'm very pleased that someone mentioned that because it's such a landmark film it's a brilliant film and yeah so William Hartnell it's interesting because he puts on a a bit of a cockney accent kind of <laughs> it's very interesting but like he doesn't really you think he should be a bit posher because he you're so used to seeing him being a little bit more reserved and a bit more like authoritative but not in doctor who <laughs> uh, but yeah william hartnell is like the second in command to pinky and sort of does the he's like the main leader but pinky is like the head of it all even though he's like the unhinged one of the group but those two are brilliant performances it also stars carol marsh the actress she looks like several other i know a lot of actresses back in the 40s they have a similar look to them because of the way they had their headshots done and the way they did their makeup for some of the film hair and makeup for the film it apparently this is a film that introduced carol marsh for the first time apparently i don't actually know many films with her in but she's a brilliant actress in this she plays the doe-eyed rose who falls in love with attenborough's pinky and essentially i'll get to what that all means in a moment but alongside her there's hermione badley who plays ida who's a very all right cockney rhyming like talking woman very loud-mouthed woman who's she's a brilliant actress she's been in quite a lot of the ealing based productions and other early british films from the 1940s those are my sort of four main actors that I would highlight from this film. There's so many more, but like William Hartnell, Carol Marsh, Hermione Badley and Richard Attenborough. But essentially this film is set in Brighton, gang-based cultures, all rife. It's quite funny the way it opens because it opens with like a disclaimer saying, oh, this is a depiction of not how Brighton is today, but it's of, of a alternative Brighton. And it's like the studios are trying to reassure the British public that oh it's safe to go to brighton and these kind of things that the violence and stuff that happens 
happens in the film does not happen in real life Brighton as to not detract from the tourism value of Brighton. <laughs> like with some stock footage of Brighton as they pan across the beaches saying, oh, this isn't a, a really nice place to live, work and visit. You know, it's not a horrible place like it's been depicted on screen. It's a different Brighton. That's what they describe it as, a different Brighton. And then that sort of sets you up for a bit of a different film. But then it gradually gets darker and darker as you go through the film. Pinky kills this. There's a there's a man. He's called Fred. Uh, he works for a local new a newspaper, and there's it's like a, like a treasure hunt kind of thing where you have to find. He leaves cards in certain specific points, and if you find him, if you find him, you have to claim. Oh, I found you. And his name is Collie Kibber because he places these cards, which are called Collie Kibber cards, and it's part of a a national competition. Because he works for a newspaper and wrote an article that got one of the former gang leaders, the father figure to Pinky, killed at the beginning, before the events of the film, they're out to seek revenge. So Pinky kills Fred. Uh, that's no real spoiler, that just sets you up. He gets killed on a ride. It's quite a, a hellish depiction, really. It's very chilling. But it, he gets killed, and then that sort of sets up the mystery. The police are searching into who could have killed him, and that that's one part of the story. But obviously, Hermione Badley's character, Ida, she actually met him, and he wanted protection, you know, someone to spend time with so that he wouldn't have to be alone and get killed, but ultimately that didn't work. You know, she kind of turns a little bit detective with it. She's a bit annoying in some respects, but you're kind of rooting for her because she's trying to surge out the evil that has killed this man that seemed quite innocent. But at the same time, you got you kind of want to root for Pinky in this one because the way it is, it's like a cat and mouse kind of thriller in a way. Like, you know what he's done. You know it's Richard Attenborough. But at the same time, you kind of want him to get away with it because you've seen who's done it you're like oh you want to see if he gets caught one of his cronies Spicer messes up and gets seen his face is seen by a waitress in a cafe near the pier who is Rose and basically Pinky makes it his job to sit there and take her out on a date be nice to her essentially keep her stum and making sure that she doesn't blab anything about recognizing anyone to the police if they ever came asking and it's kind of tragic because she actually falls in love with him, but he is just using her. And that's the premise of the film, really, is that gangsters trying to keep someone quiet as a, an illicit relationship, which isn't really a proper relationship. But you kind of you feel sorry for Rose. There's emotional impact there. I, I think in terms of I know you shouldn't base things on the appearance and just the performance, but I think Carol Marsh gives a beautiful performance as the doe-eyed teenage girl that's in love with Pinky. Uh, she looks beautiful on screen. The way she's lit and the way she's presented on f on film is just astounding. I actually, it's probably one of I prefer watching that kind of a a glamorized shot to like say Marilyn Monroe on film because Marilyn Monroe is a beautiful woman. But I would say that I don't know. I think because it's Britain and it's less Hollywood, it's a little bit more subtle and a bit more nice and sweet in that respect. So yeah, that's what I think about that. And yeah, I think the opening sequence, The Hunt for Fred, is really good. But then there's the ending of it. I won't spoil it too much, but the the demise of sort of the slow demise of Pinky as he's running away from the authorities is a brilliant ending. And it comes to an absolute climax at the end of the film, which involves a peer. And that's all I'll say for now. But it's a brilliant ending. And I highly encourage anyone to watch Brighton Rock because it and also read the book because the book is just as good, if not better than the film. So, you know, read the book and watch the film.
Moving on now to number two in my list is one that I've mentioned a little bit already, so I won't go into too much detail about it, but it's Double Indemnity, directed by Billy Wilder from 1944. It's one of the early examples of film noir that most people cite as one of the first versions of film noir. Black and white film stars Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Dietrichson, the femme fatale who essentially wants to kill her husband off and claim on the insurance money. And she forms an alliance with insurance salesman Walter Neff, who's played by insurance salesman Walter Neff, who is played by Fred McMurray. And essentially that's all really the film is. And that one's another another case of you've seen the crime happen, you see it actually happen, but then you think, oh, are they going to get caught? Are they going to get caught? It's got that nice overarching voiceover from Walter Neff throughout the entire film as through key moments and we keep flashing back to him it's classic film noir really using the voiceover to anchor us into who's telling the story and whose point of view we're meant to be following so even though they've perpetrated a crime you're following the story of this man who's literally he's just come into his office and he's sweating like hell and he just you think what the hell's wrong with him and then you discover that he's committed a crime and he's actually not a bad guy really but because of what he's done he's on the run from the police so it's kind of a very interesting one and it's set in los angeles there's some nice sunny visuals as well there i mean the nighttime sequences are probably better because it's more closer to film noir but there you go i've said lots about that film a lot but i'd highly recommend that because it's one of my favorite film noirs and i think it just punches above brighton rock because of its film noir edge even though people say brighton rock is a bit like a film noir but i would say it's a brilliant film overall. My favourite moment of it is the crime itself and the perpetration of the crime and how they get around it, how Walter disguises himself as the husband that has just been killed and, you know, how they get away with it. Because the crime itself is the most exciting part of the film, really, let's be honest. But then trying to get out of it and see if they get away with it is the excitement of it, but actually visually watching it, then perpetrating the crime itself of killing the husband and knocking him off is probably my favourite part of Double Indemnity. But without a doubt, number one on my list for the 1940s is a Jules Dassin-directed film, also released in 1948, set in New York City and largely filmed in New York City itself on location. One of the earliest examples of using entirely location-based footage and not really relying on the studio is the 1948 Jules Dassin The Naked City. I look because I love seeing New York on film I don't know what it is but it's such a great like the architecture of the city be it from the 20th century or even looking at it today it's beautiful to look at that skyline is so iconic and it's been used in so many films before but I think in this film from the 1940s it's genuinely a really a really good film if you love looking at a gritty side of New York City. So like if you watch any films of New York City in the 70s, you get to see a New York City that you don't see anymore because New York City now is a lot more cleaner than it was back in those days. In the 1940s especially, you get to see a load of locations and the skyline that you know and love, but at the same time, it's got that grit and dirt about it, like classic film noir has. And it's like I said, it's shot all on location in New York City. They go to Grand Central Station at one point. I think that entire opening sequence, it's brilliant. It opens with the, I think it's the producer, Mark hellinger he narrates the film both i think he does a bit at the end of the film but at the beginning of the film he's credited as narrator but he's also the producer of the film and he does this grandiose opening it's on the scale of what they did for brighton rock in britain but they actually have him speaking it rather than leaving the audience to read this big paragraph that's on the screen and he says the naked city it's got so many million stories 
but here's just one of them. And I think that sums up New York as a city in general. Forget film. In any city, you've got lots of stories going on. People's lives, lots of people's lives amount to different stories, different narratives. And, you know, we're just going to be shown one or at least a couple of them. I would say with The Naked City, we open with that grand introduction. We get the skyline and we close with the skyline. So it's a lovely cyclical nature of going from one point and coming back to the end. We start with the skyline. We go around all these different areas. We see uh, Grand Central Station. I think we get a bit of 7th Avenue as well, a bit of Times Square possibly, but we get little snapshots of the big city that we know. And then we go into this other world of, yeah, amazing, just completely amazing footage. And it's really dark and gritty. And then the funniest Irish accent next to Awesome Worlds' accent in The Lady from Shanghai is absolutely the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, I, I don't know whether the actor is Irish, but yeah, it's a funny Irish accent. Irish accents back in those days, like, they're just... Like, they're not quite there, but they're, they're nearly spot on. So, you know, it's an interesting... He's the main detective. Detective... What's his name? Detective Muldoon. So, Detective Lieutenant Dan Muldoon. He is just a... Uh, he's played by Barry Fitzgerald, and he's just such a interesting character to follow. You really root for him, but you kind of want to laugh at the same time. But he's, like, very hard-boiled, very witty, but also to the point. And that's what I like about it. And also the character, you know, ultimately, there's so many points I could bring out in this, his character being one of them. But the thing I love, and I'm going to spoil this, I'm really sorry, but if you want to watch this, pause this now, watch the film... But my favourite sequence of all, along with the opening as well, is the final chase across the Williamsburg Bridge. We see this massive, like, there's a bit of a car chase, and then we're following the suspect. So the suspect is uh, William Gazar. Gaza. Uh, he is being pursued by the police. They found out that it was him that perpetrated the crimes that we've seen take place right at the beginning of the film, the murder that happened at the beginning, and all the other goings-on that we've discovered throughout this film that we've been watching the chase with him is just amazing there's gunshots fired it's really intense it's really quickly paced and because it's shot on location as well it adds a bit of extra grandeur to it it's amazing i just can't believe for something of 1948 the standard and the quality of such a scale of production is just it's in awe like I would say, even though I put Brighton Rock as number three on my list, it was very hard to put it there, but I would say Brighton Rock and The Naked City are my two favourites from this list. But yeah, The Naked City really pushes it above everything else because in this final shot, again, spoilers ahead, but the... So William Gazar, he's at the top of the Williamsburg Bridge. He's climbed up all these stairs. They're shooting each other. He's shooting at the police. The police are shooting at him and then he falls to his death. I don't know what it is. There's quite a lot of... There's a lot of other films, which I haven't mentioned, which involve people falling to their death from a great height. I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> I would say that this is a brilliant climactic ending to sort of narrow my list down to its final conclusion that I love The Naked City. The Naked City is pure grit, pure crime thriller. It's not police procedural in any way. It's not really boring. You know, it doesn't go through the lives of the police or anything like that. It's very much detectives on the case and it's action-packed throughout, as well as some brilliant acting and a questionable Irish accent, but, you know, no one's perfect. And, yeah, so just to recap, my top five picks for the 1940s were... Black Narcissus, Powell and Pressburger, 1947. Casablanca, Michael Curtis, 1942. Brighton Rock, John Bolting, 1948. 
Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder, 1944. And then finally, at number one, my top pick for the 1940s, The Naked City, Jules Dassin, 1948. There you have it, guys. That's my picks for the 1940s this week. I hope you enjoyed them. If you like any of the films, please let me know. If there's any you think I've missed or I should have included or, you know, I can get in contact with you via our Instagram feed and say what was in contention to possibly be on this list, please let me know because obviously it was a very hard task to narrow these down. There's so many films I could have put on this, but ultimately this is my list. So thank you very much, guys, for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode where we will be talking all about the 1950s. So we are nearly halfway there to the full list of decades. So I look forward to giving you another five films to think about and watch or just discuss really in the next episode from the 1950s but for now that's a wrap on take 97 a film podcast the 1940s edition of the podcast and i shall see you soon thank you very much guys see you later Bye.